Barry, I am so, so sorry. You've been waiting 50 minutes before we can actually hit the record button. And basically, it's the kind of AI audio interface that I just bought has just been having battles with me. It's been going crazy. Yeah, we've been talking about all the kind of the battle, the apps between Zoom and Skype and Messenger rooms and all this stuff. We didn't think they'd actually battle each other autonomously, <laughs> Chad, with two different apps trying to control each other's volumes. It's been a bit of a nightmare. Oh, but to be honest, for 37, 38 episodes, we've had very little to go wrong, touch wood, yep. from a technical perspective. Yep. Um, of course, we all remember that dreaded incident <laughs> when I had forgot to record an entire episode. And so I will not forget that for a long time. <laughs> So, Chad, I have to forgive you because after that whole experience, this is a piece of cake, man. Thank you, Barry. You are far, far too kind. Well, welcome, guys. All right. Well, I see the waveform stopped. I'm assuming it's finished. Barry can now hear the jingles, um, but I can't. Again, <laughs> teething issues with this new sound controller. But, Barry, how's it going? How has your week been? Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chad. I'm doing well. I, I still feel cold. I still feel like a wimp saying this every <laughs> single week, but I'm cold, Chad, and I don't like it. Uh, I went for a run this morning, and uh, the sun was out. It looked beautiful from the inside, but the moment I got outside, there were like gusts oh. of wind, and it was a pretty miserable run. You know one of those where you're kind of halfway through, and you're just like, I wish I didn't get out. I wish I'd stayed at home. Um, but I got my kilometers in, and I got back into some warm uh, house, and so I'm all snuggled up here, and I'm doing good. How are you today? That's good to hear. Yeah, it's basically the same this side. We had a pretty decent weekend. I suppose there were a few patchy moments. Um, but yeah, this morning woke up to the most dreary looking day outside. But anyway, luckily we're working from home. We're, you know, able to just get on with what we need to get done and, and be productive ultimately, um, which is good. And uh, now, of course, the highlight of the Monday, our podcast for the week. Uh, dying, dying to get into it. Yeah, it's always exciting when I see that little calendar notification because, of course, I, I forget sometimes, but that calendar <laughs> reminds me. And uh, Across the Pond is one of those things I really look forward to. And I'm excited to see the topics we're going to chat about today. Got some really good stuff, Chad, so I'm excited. Well, without further ado, let's get into it. The Week That Was. Alrighty, so let's chat about a few things that happened this past week. Um, I The first one that I put on this list to chat about, Barry, is something that I'm personally a little bit annoyed by because I booked a, I booked a holiday. <laughs> now, I know it sounds crazy. Who would book travel at this time? Um, but, I mean, it does seem like we're kind of getting to that stage where, you know, airlines are adjusting, people are adjusting, businesses are kind of adapting to this new way of, of being. And I decided it would be sensible to book a holiday, seeing as it is summer this side. Um, don't want to miss out on a good month of weather in August and September, of course. So booked a, a little holiday to Menorca, one of the Balearic Islands. Very cool. And uh, found out this past weekend that uh, Spain has now been thrown out of the basically travel bridge list that the UK government have, have put up. So had to quickly go out and can cancel the reservations, Barry. Oh, that's frustrating, Chad. That's frustrating. It's it, it's one of those things where you want things to go back to normal so quickly that when things turn around and go backwards, like we're seeing here in South Africa, it's soul destroying, right? <laughs> and so I really feel for you. I hope you get your money back or at least some of your money back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at least loads of the airlines are being really, really good with um, refunding vouchers. I think they're getting very sticky with giving you your actual cash back. Um, but as long as I've got a voucher, <laughs> it's something that you know hopefully I'll be able to actually use um, in the future. And ultimately, there are still a long list of countries that are still on that travel bridge listing so uh, ultimately it's the pick of, of italy or france uh, there's worse things to complain about 
it must be tough. It must be tough. <laughs> Which European destination should I go to? Um, was it only Spain that was taken off? Is that the only kind of uh, the one that was taken off that list? Yes. So as far as I know, so far, Spain has been the only one that's been taken off since being added. And uh, it's actually was quite uh, controversial in that the transport minister was actually in Spain. Uh, while this happened and he kind of got <laughs> of caught out was. by this uh, not not very pleased um, but yes basically it's it's as a result <laughs> of the concerns of the spike in cases that they're seeing at the moment um, obviously it's not fair I would say to say that all Spanish regions and, and even the islands uh, wh- which you know was where I was going to be going um, they're actually not as intensely affected so is it fair to have a full block on Spain as a whole it, it does seem uh, like a debate that's I, I guess up for discussion um, but yeah I guess based on these concerns, the government have essentially decisively taken some action here to uh, adjust the rules there. Yeah, I think as much as it sucks personally, I think it's the right move. Yeah. If you want to be cautious in these situations, right, it's really not worth um, a holiday, which you could always go and do at, a, at another time. You want to be as cautious as possible. And if there is reason to do it, then it's worth doing. Like you say, it might not be the whole of Spain, but I'm sure from a bureaucratic perspective, it's much easier to do a blanket sure. thing than try and figure out which areas are, are fine and which aren't because people will bend those rules yep. as, till the cows come home, right? <laughs> um, so it's unfortunate, but Chad, I know you'll have another chance and I hope Hopefully you'll have another another European destination to look into. Maybe have you? Do you know what's happening in Italy? I know we 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 haven't chatted about them in a while, and I haven't heard anything about it after all the chaos that was there a couple of months ago. Do you have a sense as to whether things are back to normal on that side? So based on the friend that I have, who's in there at the moment in Italy, uh, the south of Italy, which wasn't you know massively affected. Um, it was obviously the north that had that huge huge outbreak. Um, and you know from the discussions yeah. that I've had with him, it really is back to normal. Everything feels normal um he says to me that when he goes out onto the streets all a lot of people kind of come up to him and in the very typical italian way are kissing people on the cheeks um oh wow you're from <laughs> london you know he has he has a kiss on the cheek and really quite a strange feeling uh, i guess to return back to this life as normal it feels alien to me chad when i think about what we deal with here at the moment and to, to even hear an anecdote like that doesn't make sense to me it really doesn't yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's what it is. It is very strange feeling, but uh, I mean, I guess we've got to kind of acclimatize to, to the changes here. But to be completely honest, Barry, this is essentially just saying that you don't have to quarantine on arrival for two weeks. So uh, okay. strictly speaking, technically speaking, you can still go. It just means that you need to make sure that when you return, you have to do the two-week quarantine window. Obviously, you need to give your details to government and, you know, there's the prospect of them actually checking in on you, uh, fines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I suppose those holidaymakers who, who do still want to take that risk or take that I guess, living inconvenience, um, will still make that decision. That's interesting. I mean, it depends on like what circumstances you have to quarantine when you get back, right? If you can self-quarantine at your flat and kind of work from home, then maybe it makes sense. But if you're shoved in some random hotel by the airport for two weeks, then you might might think twice about it. So I think it really depends on the circumstances of what you actually have to do when you get back to the country. Uh, But that's interesting to think about. Yeah, so as far as I know, it's self-isolating, self-isolating for for two weeks, which you can do at your own household. Um, But I mean, obviously, it's not appealing, especially when you've got things kind of getting back to normal here. The uh, Basically, you know, loads of people now on the tubes again. I was at Oxford Street on the weekend, and I think we'll chat a little bit about that. But there's loads of people out on the streets again, going to shops, you know, doing their day-to-day stuff, out in restaurants, etc., etc. And so now that life is kind of going on as normal-ish, it would feel really weird having to sit at home, I guess, especially if you've made that decision. It's that FOMO, right? <laughs> that FOMO that will take hold yep. of you when you watch all your friends 
friends' Instagram stories and you have to sit at home by yourself. So I get it. I get it. Maybe it's time to put Spain on the back burner for a little bit and look at the other multitude of options you have available. Yeah, well, one, one of those options and uh, something that actually popped up on my newsfeed this past week was uh, Barbados, the, uh, the community of Ooh. Barbados. And they are essentially encouraging people to come and move there for one year. And actually work remotely. Now that working remotely is a thing, I don't know quite about the tax issues because for a lot of big companies, <laughs> working outside of the country of the main office is quite a tax issue. And I suppose that's really the big hurdle for a lot of people actually working out, you know, abroad, um, out on a beach, um, you know, being able to live that full nomad type life. But uh, Barbados is trying to encourage that. So ultimately, they've got this 12-month working visa, which basically costs 2000 per person um i suppose relatively inexpensive uh, considering you know you can actually move there and uh, use their high speed broadband that's available uh, they've said that this is actually higher speed ranked higher than the uk funny enough um so you know for being able to work remotely and actually still be able to do all your you know day-to-day -day things barry it seems like a reasonable prospect to me I'm fascinated by these nomadic kind of communities yeah. that have popped up in all these beach resorts around the world, right? We've seen obviously this rise of people being able to run businesses off their laptop mm -hmm. or to work from anywhere in the world and do all of this stuff. And so it's always that thing, like why would you why would you sit in a big city where you could lie on a beach all day and work from work from your kind of lounge chair, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of these cities and a lot of these resorts and kind of beach locations have become these hubs for all these rich white people from the first world to go and spend their yeah. time there and work from those places. And so so I've read a few articles about these these fancy resorts and there's just piles and piles of Americans and British people yeah. and, and Australians and whatnot who are living their best life uh, in shorts, no shirts, on their laptop doing their thing. Um, and so obviously some, some people like Barbados obviously are trying to capture this and trying to take advantage, of course. Um, and I, I, can, I can think of worse places to be, Chad. I can definitely think of worth, worse places to be. Yeah, this is true. I mean, I was actually looking at that particular article and they said the average temperature there is 27 degrees Celsius. And, you know, throughout the year, you've got an average of eight hours of, of, of light, of, of daylight. That's what I'm talking about, day. Chad. That's what I want. Nothing I don't wrong want this with cold. that. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one very, very strange thing that comes on the back of that. And uh, I don't know, Barry, if you're into this kind of thing. Um, but apparently, yeah. if you enjoy wearing camouflage, you're actually in threat there. <laughs> You could be arrested if you're seen wearing camouflage because only the Defense Force can wear camouflage, you know, anything in Barbados. Now, Chad, <laughs> when you hear something bizarre like that, you just know that there's some story behind that rule, right? Yep. So who was the person behind that rule? They were like, we have to make a rule about wearing camouflage because something happened. I'm dying to know that backstory because that is a very bizarre fact. <laughs> oh, it is super random. And yeah, the fact that that is the only like kind of, I suppose, negative point that is even raised in this article. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't ever wear camo stuff. So uh, that's, that's really interesting. And also, how big is the Barbados army? Like, are they expecting invaders? Or like, how? Are they? Like, I don't see them as a big military threat. Yep. Maybe that's a general generalization. I don't know. Hey, I have no idea either at all. Um, but yeah, definitely <laughs> interesting to, to talk about. I, I suppose one more thing on the Spain point, Barry, um, is, is obviously mm. the, the, the tourism factor. So if you look at uh, Spain's you know, tourism numbers, the UK makes up more than a quarter of their visitors every year. Sure. So obviously, you know, this kind of move 
um, definitely, definitely doesn't play well for the tourism industry. Yeah, that is a big blow. I didn't realize it was that high, but it kind of makes sense because yeah. I think British people are looking for that sun and Spain's a good place to go. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense. And so they must be very angry or very frustrated with this because obviously the tourism industry around the world has taken a huge hit. And uh, this kind of green shoots and people are trying to get things back on board. And uh, if you get hit with this again, I'd be, I'd be angry, I think, if I was Spain. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, their prime minister has actually tried to get in touch with the UK government and tried to actually get them to basically add an exception for the islands. Like I said, the islands, um, basically they're, they're isolated. They're isolated lands, right? There's hardly any uh, chance of, of mass travel and mass spreading, I guess, when you've got these localized lands. And if you look at the kind of numbers there as well, um, the islands are, are not that high. We have, however, talked about a phenomenon out here in the UK before, Barry, one that uh, you were not too chuffed with or not too in support of, and that is the phenomenon of, of Love Island. So I kind of return back to that <laughs> point. Um, and we actually saw the, the some of the old cast members of Love Island uh, basically being paid to go to Mallorca to film this kind of uh, encouragement video type of thing um, to, to try and get people to come out onto the island as well. Chad, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I know it's a huge thing in the UK and like there's celebrities over there and everyone knows their names and yep. everyone loves the show. And from an outsider's perspective, I just don't understand it, right? I can kind of understand kind of The Bachelor as, as a concept because there's been enough seasons and I've, I've had a little bit of like interaction with that show. Yep. But Love Island to me just seems so wild and wacky. But I know they're huge celebrities, so that makes all the sense in the world. I'm sure that every resort and every tourism company is trying to get those kind of people on board yep. to try and like tell the rest of the public things are good it'll be okay you can come meet your favorite star on the beach here <laughs> yeah and uh, i mean i've actually seen some of the love island stars but i think i've seen three um at you know fairly short distance and yeah barry you can say you don't get the craze until you're standing there and they're right in front of you and you've been watching them for weeks on end inside a villa doing crazy things um you know it's it's hard to not get involved are they as orange as i imagine them to be <laughs> <laughs> so the particular ones that I saw were not, actually. Um, the first one that I saw was uh, Alex, the doctor. He's actually created his own YouTube channel, um, and he's okay. been covering a lot of being in the hospital during you know, COVID and, and all the rest of it. Um, so you can definitely check out his YouTube channel, but he's not the typical Love Island, um, you know, got tons of fake tan everywhere. Um, he was kind of more of the, you know, bachelor that the that the moms would be keen for for, for the girls to bring home um some of the others though i actually saw the winner before um the amber oh wow and she propelled to massive fame after winning um you know with with her partner who is greg an irish guy who came in and kind of swooped her off her feet um and i saw her funny <laughs> enough in in notting hill as well so no barry i haven't seen that mass you know crazy fake tan they're just normal people as well yeah, I, I'm going to have to go with your word, of course, because I don't know enough about this. But uh, it, it is a very, very strange phenomenon, Chad, especially uh, from my perspective. Uh, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe one day I need to give it a go and see, give it like fuss bait and get through one or two episodes. And who knows? Maybe I'll get hooked and I'll, I'll figure out what the whole fuss is about. Well, I think you're OK not to, Barry. There's lots of people on the not for love island camp <laughs> so you're definitely not alone there i think i think you'll be doing just fine uh, one of the things that that happened this past week is there, I, th I think there was quite a lot of development on your side barry i've been seeing some fairly cheesed off kind of messages flowing about uh, on my facebook page about 
The lackluster, you know, handling of current affairs by government this past week in South Africa. We've seen some very funny memes, which I've sent to you as well. Um, apparently, you've got a little bit more detail to fill us in on. Yeah, Chad, it's been a tough week this side, and uh, I'm very sad to have to bring all this stuff up because we've chatted yeah. so much about how well South Africa's done in the past few months as to get things going. We've like been sharing lots of positive messaging and whatnot, but we've certainly seen a huge tide in the last couple of weeks uh, in the opposite direction. Um, some of the some of the things that have happened are starting to come to light. Uh, I think the African population are very frustrated because we've been locked up for so long, and now we're starting to hit the peak. The case numbers are going up and up. The anxiety levels are, are racing as well. And so there's a lot of factors that are contributing to uh, kind of a downward sentiment here in South Africa at the moment. So I think uh, President Ramaphosa felt that, and so he felt like he had to come and, and, and speak again, and he gave one of his typical, um, very well-prepared monologues to the country a couple of days ago. And uh, he was there on two topics. The first one, they've now closed all the schools again. So oh, they've wow. looked at all the case numbers, and after reopening all the schools, they've now closed all the schools. And so this back and forth and back and forth and not knowing which grades are going back on which dates and, and, and schools are trying to kind of figure out what they're supposed to do. And uh, there's lots and lots of miscommunication and misinformation, the private schools versus the public schools, the grade 7s versus the grade 12s and yada, yada, Gosh. yada. And so there's a lot of frustration in that because no one quite knows what's going on. It doesn't feel like there's a solid plan and solid data that's backing up these decisions. And uh, as time goes on and we go, go through more and more of these monologues, there's this call for actual dialogue and actual kind of press conferences where journalists can ask subtle questions, right? Yep. If you've ever watched one of these things, it basically is a prepared speech. Yeah. Cyril sits there and he reads from a teleprompter and he speaks very articulately and very well and kind of it's very well structured. Sure. And I think that's kind of the calm nature you need at this at this point in time. But there's been a lot of pushback from the media this side. And they want to be able to question decisions. They want to be able to ask Cyril like, about what's going on, especially the school yeah. stuff, because no one knows what's going on, Chad. Yeah, that's completely, completely fair. And it makes complete sense. And that's one of the things that I must say I, I have admired on the UK's response. Um, obviously, there's been loads of calls about not acting quick enough, you know, not doing the right things. Uh, we've spoken about this before as well. But the one thing that they have done is a daily press briefing ultimately. And, uh, you know, at 10 Downing Street, there is a representative. It wasn't always Boris, um, but there were representatives there. And after every single session, allowed the opportunity for the media to ask questions. And fairly late, I suppose, into the game, they extended the invite to members of the public as well. So if you wanted, you could send through a voice note, you could send through an email, you could send through whatever you wanted, and uh, you could actually have your question as well answered. And I guess that does kind of hash out some of the detail and some of the interpretations and some of the changes. Definitely. And it, and even more so than the actual responses themselves, it's just the indication that we're willing to talk to you, right? We're yeah. willing to hear your thoughts. We're willing to be in dialogue. And that's been missing. And for it's a, it's a weird thing because I haven't thought about it that way. After watching like probably 10 or 12 of these over the last few months, Chad, I never once thought, why is this a monologue and why aren't we hearing responses? But in the last week, as I've heard the media start to raise their voice about this, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that we haven't had those kind of open discussions where people can kind of challenge things. And so all of that all of that pressure and all of that discussion goes onto places like Twitter. And we know that Twitter is not great for that kind of discussion, <laughs> yeah. right? And so that's been a, it's been a big frustration here. And uh, I'm hoping that the, the ANC will take it into account and try and do something about it because I can definitely feel the pressure is bubbling here in the country. And the second reason it's bubbling is because the second piece that he chatted about was that of corruption. 
Right. And uh, for anyone who's African, you know, corruption has been a big part of our lives for forever, basically. Yeah. Uh, across Africa, it's a, it's a widespread problem. And here in South Africa, if, ever since the Jacob Zuma days, where there was huge allegations and, and convictions of state capture and all sorts of crazy stuff happening, um, Ramaphosa was supposed to be this kind of savior to come in and clean out the ANC. But unfortunately, there are allegation after allegation after allegation every single day you hear about a news story about a piece of that 500 billion rand relief package going to someone that it shouldn't have no. or inflated prices on ppe or all sorts of stuff and it really makes me sad because basically what it looks like we in, in south africa we're fighting two pandemics we're fighting the pandemic that's actually the virus right and then we're fighting the pandemic of even when we make relief funding available a lot of it doesn't get to its intended recipients and yeah, it's 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 heart wrenching, Chad. Because at the end of the day, it's people out of greed and out of power stealing money from the country. It's absolutely, absolutely devastating, and I, I suppose it's one of the reasons that you know I actually decided to leave um, because of the fact that you pay your taxes and ultimately get very, very little, if nothing, in return. Ultimately, everything has to be private. You've always got to pay a premium on you know what should be available under what you're paying for for taxes and i guess you know when it comes to these types of relief funds like you say um, there are massive communities of people out there who are in dire need i've seen so much good work that's been done by private organizations a particular instagrammer that i follow um, who's got a really cool page and he's got such a cool um, i guess personality based in cape town ginger with a gopro um, he basically did this cause and managed to raise over five hundred thousand rand by himself, uh, one single individual. Now, obviously, that's, you know, that in the big scheme of things, um, when we look at these massive relief funds and stuff, uh, it doesn't even compare. But ultimately, why do private individuals need to take that extra step and put together their own measures? Um, well, it's very clear. They can see that the government funding is not doing anything. Yeah, it, it's a really sad thing because that is a huge amount of money that South Africa's tried to pump into this thing, and it's, it's desperately needed, like you say. And the problem is that even if it does, even if it is getting to the communities, it's getting there too slowly in most cases. For a lot of the business funding that was supposed to try and help these companies stay alive during this period, it took too long to disperse the funds because we didn't have the structure or the infrastructure in place to be able to use that money effectively. And so I know a lot of companies that I either worked with or, or chatted to who could have survived if they got the money early enough. But by the time the money comes, the business is already dead, right? And so there's been lots of concerns about this, and the, the corruption is a, is a real difficult one because uh, Cyril did mention a brand new, I think it's brand new, maybe it's a, a re-jig a re of a, an existing organization called a Special Investigating Unit to try and look into some of these allegations. But of course, we've seen this time and time and time again. We've had tons of task teams, tons of these yep. kind of units that, that are supposed to go and do it. And in fact, breaking news, like an hour before we start recording, this is on on Monday, uh, there was an announcement that the president's spokesperson, Ms. Kuzela Diko, has taken a leave of absence because there's been oh, wow. allegations about her and her husband being involved in some sort of tender situation. Oh, wow. As far as I understand, her husband's company was reportedly awarded two tenders for PPE worth 125 million rand. Oh, wow. And he's, he's, the allegations that, it, that the prices that he charged were in very inflated and it's kind of very dodgy. And so when it's something that close to the president in the ANC, like one of his trusted advisors and the actual spokesperson for the organization is in this kind of mess, it just gives you a sense it gives you a very bad feeling about what's happening throughout the rest of the ruling party and what's happening around the country how much of that 500 billion rand is actually getting to our citizens and that it makes me very sad chad 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously the first emotion to feel is anger. Um, but the one that you're feeling now is, is one that I think a lot of people have, have got to that stage of just feeling sad, just feeling down. Um, there was a video that went viral on Facebook. I'm sure it popped up in your feed as well, Barry, about being in an abusive relationship with the ANC ultimately. The country is in an abusive relationship with the ANC. And I mean, when it comes to governance, I mean, all of the stuff that we studied, Barry, uh, ultimately, when it comes to these key contracts, they sh- there should be a kind of committee level that all of these kind of conflicts are recorded, ultimately decided upon whether it's even appropriate for these kinds of things to, to happen. But there just isn't that governance framework anywhere. Uh, ultimately, you know, you're just accepting whatever is there um, any tiny, tiny little control is, you know, praised. Um, but ultimately, it's it's not. It's just not up to standard. Yeah, it's it's a lack of transparency, right? We're not we're not seeing the transparency as to where this this funding is actually going. And uh, you can talk to ten different people, and they all give you different numbers as to where the money has gone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you don't have that structure, like you say, you don't have those strong controls, you don't have transparency and accountability on that money, then people are going to take advantage, especially if they if they're in a position to do so. And unfortunately, we kind of stuck with the ANC. We don't yeah. have a credible opposition that can really challenge them right now. And so we're in quite a difficult situation here. And I think that the next few months are going to be very challenging politically um, as we start to unravel some of the stuff. I think a lot of the positive sentiment from the last couple of months, how have we dealt with kind of the beginning of this virus has been very good. But I'm a little bit worried about where things are going. And, and I'm, I'm so optimistic. I still believe in this country as, as I always do, yep. maybe to a fault. Um, but it's one of those things where we need to see some strong leadership right now. We need to see proper accountability. We need to see people like jailed. We need to see people put away if they are involved in this kind of stuff and not yep. just given a slap on the wrist because that's what's going to send the message that this is not okay and we have to move forward with with haste absolutely absolutely and uh, i mean that's on the public domain right um, but if we kind of just even strip it back to the the private domain and when we look at matters of tax which i guess is the key collection component i saw a story this past week about black coffee um having been accused of owing kind of 40 million rand in tax bills and SARS just agreeing to accept nine sure that sounds crazy i haven't heard that story chad but it's 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 kind of indicative of, of what the tax situation we're feeling in this country right yeah. south africa is so desperate to to recover tax revenue that SARS is willing to do those kinds of deals, it seems, because unfortunately the reality is that a small portion of the population is covering the tax for the entire population, right? So we have a very, very small tax-paying base that is paying for the public services of everybody in the country. And that's obviously a legacy of apartheid, of course, because we've got a huge huge amount of the population under the poverty line, and that's a big problem. But at the same time, it puts SARS in a difficult position because they have to make a call in this sense. And Black Coffee is obviously a huge celebrity and a big global name. It's not a good thing when you hear a story like like that right we don't want to be sitting that kind of precedent 100 percent, absolutely uh, it really is worrying especially when you look at the tax rules of uh, people who earn money from outside of the country uh, there's been quite a bit of scrutiny on that and those changes as well over the last couple of years and so when it comes to enforcement like this it, it, it certainly doesn't send a good message um, but anyway i hope that good leadership does eventually come barry uh, we'll keep just talking about it until the cows come home um, but ultimately you know hopefully some changes are actually made um, we've got a lot to talk about though this week and uh, i cannot wait to move on to the next section uh, are you happy for us to make that move of course chad let's go stuff i found interesting Alrighty, so like I said, tons, tons, tons to discuss this week. We kind of hinted it last week in the episode, and if that's why you are here, well, you have finally, finally reached there. We're going to talk about uh, the experiment, ultimately, that Barry 
kind of embarked on. Um, and that is writing a fully-fledged novel in 30 days, um, ultimately in the month of November. Um, Barry will obviously talk us through um, all the various uh, kind of motivators for it and, you know, the actual cause and, and the society that establishes this, that gets done every year, etc., etc., etc. But I basically made sure before us even talking about this this week um, that I had watched quite a few of the vlogs that we're going to be talking about. And I think I've watched oh about boy. 60% of them, Barry. Um, <laughs> I know you say, oh boy, but to be completely honest, I, I, th- I thought they were really, really cool. I thought they were really cool. And uh, what I've Thank specifically you. done is uh, taken a, a few notes to chat about throughout this episode. Um, but I made sure that I wasn't putting them on our show notes uh, just so that it is a very off the cuff conversation. Um, and I think that is the best way for us to handle this topic. So why don't you talk us through your motivators and uh, yeah, I mean, what what did you do? Yeah, so so the motivations are an interesting point. I think I, I've got a lot of dreams, and I think anyone who knows me knows I've got a thousand different things <laughs> I want to do, and that's sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Yep. But one of the things that I want to do in my life, I, I've got this idea that I want to create a fully-fledged piece of art in every category there is, right? Okay. So I want to write an album. I want to write a play. I want to write a screenplay. I want to write yeah. uh, all these things. And a novel is one of those pieces, right? And so writing a novel has always been something I've wanted to do. Um, as a huge book nerd myself, I've read lots and lots of them, and I, I really want to write one, and hopefully more than one. And it's one of those things where it's been on my list forever. And uh, I've tried a couple times in the past, and I've gotten, say, a few thousand words in. At the very beginning, it's very exciting, and it's very easy to write in the first few days okay. because you're excited about this new story. You're like, I'm going to write the next great novel. <laughs> it's going to go huge. Everyone's going to talk about it. Um, but you find out very quickly that writing a huge piece of work like that is a lot of work. And the actual inspiration runs out very quickly. And so there's been a number of occasions, and they're definitely buried in my computer somewhere, <laughs> of half-hearted attempts at, at novels, right, where I've kind of given up because either I lost momentum or I didn't believe in it, the story enough or for various yep. reasons. And after doing it three or four times, I was getting frustrated with myself because I, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't keep going. Why did I keep stopping after the inspiration ran out? Um, because you have, to, you have to realize that writing a novel takes, I mean, I'd say very conservatively, two or three years if you're doing it properly right. because it's such a big piece of work. And so you have to really commit for a long period of time. And in trying to figure out why I was stopping, I think I realized that I wasn't accountable to anybody. It was it was one of those things where I I was doing it for myself and because if I had some random dream, but there was no deadline, there was no one forcing me to do it. And so it was very easy to kind of procrastinate on it. I think for a lot of us, if we don't have a deadline, Chad, I, I know I'm, <laughs> this, I'm like this, is that there's no deadline, I'm I'll just... Same faff around forever right and so I needed that accountability and I needed some reason to kind of push myself along this journey and get further than I had before and so I found this community called NaNoWriMo which stands for National Novel Writing Month and I found about I found out about it through a YouTuber who vlogged her experience and so I watched her vlog and I found it very interesting and basically what they try and do is they're a non-profit organization run by some proper book nerds right (laughs) and they are nerds without even like apologizing for it they are uh, my kind of people (laughs) and uh they run this thing called NaNoWriMo, which encourages would-be authors or wannabe authors to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Insane. Insane. Now, for anyone who's, who's, who's ever like tried to write an essay, 50,000 words is a lot of words. It really is a lot of words. It, it's, it's a lot of pages. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. And 50,000 words in 30 days sounds ridiculous to anyone who hears that up front. 
Um, and that's the whole point of the challenge. Like the whole point of the challenge is that can you write 50,000 words in 30 days? Can you achieve the impossible? And the way they try and help you do that, Chad, is that they emphasize the fact that the words don't have to be good. Uh-huh. That's the first thing, right? You, your first draft of anything, especially a long novel, is going to be bad. Right. The problem that we have as writers is that we're comparing our first draft with the published versions that have gone through 8,000 editors yeah. and been going for four years, right? And so obviously yeah. it feels like yours is bad. And so if you censor yourself and you try and edit as you write, you're never going to get the word count that you need to, to finish that challenge. And so the whole idea is to try and encourage you to just get anything on the page. Literally, it doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter about the holes, et cetera, et cetera. Because once it's on the page then you can actually play with it and you, actually, you can actually move it around and edit from there. And so that, that for me was a huge breakthrough because it allowed yep. me to kind of get over my fear and over the, the censorship of myself and just write and write and write and write. And spoiler alert, I managed to finish the 50,000 words in the end of 30 <laughs> days. And it was an accomplishment that I'll never forget because I didn't think it was possible. And at the end of the month, when I looked at my finished manuscripts, it it was a it was a moment Chad, that I think I really hold in very high regard in yeah. my life because I didn't think it was possible and I had a fully fledged draft in my hand. Incredible, incredible. And obviously I didn't watch all of them, um, but I, I, I did make sure that I saw that final moment. And uh, I mean, you literally had <laughs> nothing to say. I, it's one of those where, you know, as you kind of push these boundaries and you get to that place, you ultimately get to the top of the mountain. We've spoken about this moment a few times. Um, you, you're looking down and you're like, well, what's next kind of thing? And and I, I kind of just reveled in your glory of the whole moment. Um, but anyway, let's kind of step quite a lot back. Um, and obviously, you know, as you said, it, it changed really would take a couple of years to do this so looking through the process of how you did it um you basically set out a a kind of guideline um of basically obviously the the key story the key themes uh, the key characters all of that kind of stuff and you mentioned you spent about a year putting this kind of key guideline together um what was your whole inspiration behind that um and was it something that you just developed over time or was it something that you would kind of just keep going back to um what was ultimately the, the bones of the book so I think I did a lot of research about this. I did a lot of research about how do people write novels because it, it is a very overwhelming task to sit down and decide, cool, with the blank page, I'm just going to write a novel. It, it doesn't work like that, yeah. right? And so I did some research and found out there are two types of writers. The first type of writer is kind of an off-the-cuff writer who is right. able to sit there with a blank page and just write stream of consciousness and see where the story goes. Okay. And so when they, st- when they start a book, they don't know how it's going to finish up <laughs> because they kind of get into the minds of the characters and let the characters speak in a very kind of inspirational way. So they let the story unfold as it goes and then see where the story goes. Right? That's the first type. I'm not that type. <laughs> the second type is what I am. The second type are those who plan it like as best they can and yep. give it a really structured thing. Um, for me, I'm a very A-type personality. I'm an accountant after all. I like plans. I like structure. <laughs> and so what helps to break down that overwhelming task of the whole novel is to figure out an outline of what you want to happen. So I had the story in mind for a couple of years before this. It was always okay. a story I wanted to write. Um, and so I, I, I'd always, I had pieces of it in my Evernote and in various journals and stuff. And so what I did was I collected all those notes and I started working on some sort of outline. And basically what I tried to do was every single chapter, I had one Microsoft Word document for each chapter. And I would try and write a little two-line two summary of what I wanted to happen in that chapter, what character development I wanted, where was the setting, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, like you say, I had this outline where I think I had just under 50 chapters, I think, in total. Okay. And on each chapter, I knew what I wanted to happen in that little period. 
So that when I was actually writing during the month of November, I wasn't looking at an overwhelming thing. Yep. All I was doing was picking one piece of paper out of my kind of plan and just focusing on that chapter for that night. And that really helped me kind of break up this ginormous task into something that was actually tangible and achievable in an hour or two of writing. And if I didn't do that, I don't think I would have finished this thing. Yeah, I mean, just in itself, it's it, it's a massive, massive achievement. I, I honestly cannot believe that people can do it without having a plan. Um, and even with the plan, I mean, <laughs> me, what? Me, me. let's just kind of talk about what Barry achieved here. Because you didn't just write a full novel in 30 days. Um, you were kind of balancing a full-time job, one that was demanding 11-hour <laughs> work days as well. Um, Barry kind of always, you know, it seems was into multiple sports. He was going to play cricket, action cricket. He was going to play hockey. Um, he was running. He was doing all of these kinds of things, balancing it all at the same time um, and ultimately trying to to meet this word goal of 2,000 words a day. I'll just think about that. Think about 2,000 words a day as you're listening to this just mull it over in your head that number for me it is so daunting I don't know how you could even achieve that um, but you did it through various things called sprints which I found fascinating um, involving a, a community of people as well but let's just talk about balancing that all how on earth did you do it Chad, when I look back on it, I don't know how I did it. When I watch those videos back, it feels like a different human back then, right? Yeah. I, I, I was chatting to a friend of mine the other day talking about it and saying that I don't feel as as kind of as productive as I did back then. Back yep. then, I was able to achieve a lot of crazy stuff. And I must say, it wasn't a healthy yep. month. No, like, sure. I must be honest. Like, this is not a sustainable thing to do. Yep. At the end of the month, I was very ill and I was very burnt out. And it took yep. a huge toll on my health because, I, like you say, I was working in investment banking at the time. So I was working long banking hours. I was then playing a bit of sport as well. I was getting home and writing in the evenings. Then I was also filming and editing a vlog every night and yep. posting yep. it at like 2 a.m. Yep. and then starting again the next, night, next morning at 6 a.m. Um, and I think the reason I was able to do it was that I had this mission. I had said to myself that I'm going to do this. I'm going to post about it online. So if I don't succeed, I'm going to look like a fool in front of my <laughs> friends, right? Using that social pressure on yourself. Yep. And that, at the end of the day, I just did whatever it took. I, I kind of sacrificed my health, sacrificed my social life, sacrificed everything else. But for that one moment, for that one month, I'd I achieved something that I never would have accomplished if I tried to do it for a year at a lesser intensity yep. in a way. And so in the same way that we can talk about sprints just now, this was a sprint, like a macro sprint. Yep. For that month, I said to myself, the only thing that mattered beyond my actual work commitments, of course, was that novel. And uh, the sport actually was was a, a proactive thing to try and help me with that. It right. gave me energy. Going to play hockey or going to play cricket gave me right. energy to write in the evenings. So a lot of people saw it and they were like, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you stop doing the physical <laughs> exercise? And the whole point is that that gets the blood flowing. Yep. After sitting in a desk for 11 hours a day to go home and then sit in another desk and try and write is a nightmare. So being able to go out and get some fresh air, go and play some sport, get my mind off it, get some blood pumping through the body, that enabled me to then get home at 10 p.m. and write for two or three hours before I did the, the vlog and then went to bed. Insane. And when you talk about those vlogs, I mean, when you actually watch the vlogs, it all just seems seamless. I mean, even when you watch, you know, other, other big kind of <laughs> vloggers, um, it just seems seamless. You, It's very easy to open up this video, hit play and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, fine. It, you know, may, may have taken a couple of minutes to make. And anyone who's created a video knows it is everything but. And uh, I mean, Barry, you didn't have you know, incredible tools at your disposal here either. You had iMovie, um, the stock standard Apple solution. Um, but ultimately, in my opinion, uh, for the time, five years ago, we're talking five years ago, 2015, 
Um, I mean, I think you produced pretty good things. Uh, as you say, considering you're still juggling, actually completing the task at hand, editing these videos, um, and, and also, you know, your, your day-to-day work and, you know, being able to get the sleep and all of that kind of stuff. Um, for me, it just is truly inspirational. Um, and, you know, just being able to, to have all of those videos to look back at, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure is fantastic. I mean, some of the things that I, I noticed while looking through those videos is, is kind of you know, how much actually changes it, that Barry five years ago is the same, very same Barry that I talked to today. Um, and, and I just find that so fascinating. Yeah, it, it's a strange one, Chad, because I, I've kind of, in the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about my own personal work ethic and yep. what I was able to accomplish at that time versus what I feel like is a tough day today. And, and it feels like different people. Yep. But you're right, that that was me and that's the same person. And I think it, it, it calls to kind of the mission. At the end of the day, why I think I, I managed to do what I did was because of that mission. I had convinced myself that I was going to do yep. this. I, there was no doubts in my mind, right? I was going to make it happen no matter what it took. And I think if you have that strong why, you have that strong mission, yep. and you're willing to put in the work and you're like not worried about what other people think, I think one of the reasons those videos worked is that I didn't care about what they looked like. Half of them, I'm sweaty after <laughs> hockey. I, I, I didn't care about the production value, right? Yep. All I cared about was every single day getting something out. And when I set those priorities, I was able to accomplish a hell of a lot. And I sit here today, Chad, thinking about my own life right now, and I wonder why I haven't tapped into that again, yep. why I haven't kind of found some aspects of that um, in my own life today. Obviously, I could never get back to that sort of intensity for a long period of time. Like sure. it, it really was a burnout period. But there must be opportunities to pull some of those aspects out and really like deploy them in my life today. And so this whole discussion is making me think about that. And hopefully for the listeners, if you have something in your life that you've always wanted to do, that intensity can get, can achieve things that you don't even know is possible, right? Yeah. And finding the right support structures, the right accountability, the right mission or the right reason, you can accomplish 10x what you think you can as you sit here today. Yeah, you're completely, completely correct. And when I watched that video, uh, the first thing that kind of jotted to my mind was the ease with which you were, you know, vlogging ultimately. We've spoken about self-doubt <laughs> before and that Barry had no problem doing it. That Barry had no problem having friends, um, interviewing them outside of a church kind of thing, um, having you know really good <laughs> discussion. Um, and ultimately, it's, it's one of those weird things that you know I don't want to kind of detract too much from the story because we're going to keep talking about it. But it's one of those things that it's weird. It's, it's sometimes we, we kind of have these the training wheels that come off and we feel this confidence. And then somehow, as life goes on, we kind of lose it a little bit. I've certainly felt that with myself. And I think that's what you were kind of referring to in that little point there as well. Um, but it's just such a weird phenomenon. It's all momentum, Chad. It's all momentum, right? The reason that thing worked is because every day I was putting something out. Yep. So every day that I did manage to put that video out and I did manage to hit my word counts, I felt more and more confident. So you can see in the videos, in the first few videos, I'm still a little bit uncertain yep. as to this yep. whole thing. But by 14, 15, 16, etc., I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to get this right <laughs> and I'm convinced it's going to work out. Yep. And, and that naive kind of optimism simply comes from small wins that accumulate over time. Yep. And so that's why I think so much of us lose it because if you lose that momentum, it's hard to get it back. It's hard to get back into that, that rhythm of those small wins every single day. Yep. And when kind of life hits you across the face a couple of times, it becomes harder to do it. And, and so that's why I think these missions are so powerful, even if it doesn't result in anything, even if the book never gets published, yeah. even if no one ever reads it, that experience has meant more to me than a lot of other things in my life that I probably don't even remember, right? Because it was such such a random dream, a random thing that I wanted to accomplish, but that passion and that those small wins every single day 
or the, or the basis of my friends and family watching me do it, it kind of added up into this really magic formula. And I think we all need to look for that. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, we'll obviously leave the link to, you know, all of the vlogs for anyone who does want to go and watch them. And I, I recommend that you do, especially if you're a fan of this podcast. Um, ultimately, you know, I definitely recommend you go and spend some time there. Now, let's talk about the story a little bit. Um, obviously, uh, I know it's top secret and there's loads of signed embargoes <laughs> and all of those kinds of things. But let's let's kind of discuss the little leaks that you um, let out, you know, throughout the thing. So just in terms of the genre. Um, you explain the differences between, uh, you know, the two various forms of sci-fi and your form of sci-fi, which is what this novel is, being one that is kind of future looking, forward looking. Um, and, you know, it was fascinating for me to hear you talk about artificial intelligence then, five years ago. And obviously, you know, now <laughs> it's it's kind of become your, your life's mission, really. So for me, when I kind of even heard you talking about it, um, kind of just had like a well done in the back of my mind for actually you know following through and actually like doing it like well done like that's amazing to actually uh, you know make the leap and and, and actually commit to uh, your passion um, which I think is, is fascinating so obviously it was based in the future right and it is five years ago how far in the future was it based and has it become irrelevant or is the content on which you've written still plausible Chad is the opposite it's become even more plausible because they had advancements in the last five years. So when I was writing five years ago, I was I was aiming for I think about 20, 20 or so years in the future at right. that point. Um, and as things have advanced, the actual story is not as sci-fi as it used to be because <laughs> we started to see so many advancements in these key technologies. Okay. So to give you a little bit of the plot line, what it kind of follows the story of this AI that that goes a little bit rogue. It starts to kind of learn from itself and starts to write some of its own code. Right. And it's in one of these genetic engineering labs where they're working with genomes and they're trying to work with embryos, which is kind of where the CRISPR technology we've chatted about yes. in the past. Um, basically what happens is that the computer engineers a small mutation in one of those genomes and that embryo eventually becomes a person and then all sorts of hell breaks loose uh -huh. after that so it is it is still speculative fiction it still is a fictional narrative it's certainly not there yet yeah. but so much of the technology that i spoke about in that book and i tried to explain in that book has become even more real today amazing which is it's kind of terrifying because i didn't expect <laughs> it to be this quick i didn't i, I kind of thought it would be yeah. in the future for quite a while yeah. but the way it's written at the moment it, it is kind of very plausible and I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to tell a story like this was because I believe that these are the stories that are going to educate people on AI. I think so much of the AI conversation is very technical. Yep. It's very, very, very smart people, PhDs in mathematics and statistics and computer science who are trying to talk about these topics in ways that are inaccessible for the majority of the population. Whereas fictional novels and, and fictional narratives and movies and those sorts of things hopefully can bring out some of the ideas and some of the problems and ethical dilemmas in this stuff for someone who doesn't have to go and study five years of computer science. So my whole goal with the story was that hopefully my mom would be able to read the story and understand why I care about AI ethics right. so much. And that's kind of the vision that I had in my mind. Can I one day give this book to my mother who knows nothing about technology <laughs> and get her to understand why I am so interested, fascinated, and terrified by the ethical dilemmas that come, come about when it comes to artificial intelligence? Nice. And so, yeah, to see it come closer and closer over time is, is scary, Chad. That's amazing. Uh, the, the, the famed mom test, one that we heard about tons in, in audit articles, um, basically that you know, if, <laughs> if your documenting is not clear 
enough for your own mom who knows nothing about the subject matter to understand, well, you've clearly not included enough detail. And I love the fact that, you know, that is essentially the idea here. Um, and it's a great, great way, I think, for, for anyone to kind of immerse themselves in a world that they know nothing about, um, as long as they keep an open mind and actually realize that a lot of this stuff is very, very plausible, like you say, um, based on advancements. So hopefully we can actually see a released book soon. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. The one thing I wanted to chat about, which was, I suppose, kind of a little bit of a funny one on, on my side, is your fascination with this band that I'd never heard about called The Glitch Mob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the glitch mob. Chad, I haven't listened to them for so long and it brings back memories. I think I, I've listened to a lot of authors speak and a lot of musicians and, and, and I, I like listening to the interviews when they talk about how they created certain things. Yeah. And there's a lot of writers that talk about the fact that when you're writing for long periods of time, for months after months after months, and if you're listening to music in the background, it almost becomes a soundtrack to your writing yeah. in a way because you're using it as influence, obviously dictating your mood. And what I found in this in this like experiment was how depending on my mood would depend on how I wrote yep. the various characters, which was very interesting. Yep. So depending on how my day went at work, how much energy I had, do I feel happy, do I feel sad, that would actually bleed into the characters themselves. And the music does that as well. The music kind of bleeds into that book. So I listened to the Glitch Mob basically on repeat for that whole process. <laughs> and it became a little like ritual. When I put them on, I knew it was time to write. Awesome. It was like one of those like mental triggers for yourself where you figure out, cool, I'm going to put the rest of the day behind me. I'm going to close the door, put the Glitch Mob on and do my <laughs> thing. And so the, their music, while I don't like listen to it on a day-to-day basis, yeah. it is forever connected to that book. And a lot of the influence, some of the lyrics are even hidden okay. in there for Easter eggs. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of influence from the way that those that music made me feel. And it really indicated what those characters were going through. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was an interesting kind of little connection to yeah. make. And it certainly is a memory trigger for me. Amazing, amazing. That is awesome. And you actually touched on one of the topics that I wanted to chat about a little bit later in the discussion, which was the mood, your writing mood, and how that bled through to the various characters. And one of the things that you mentioned in that video is, is almost strategizing around it. Do you write only certain scenes based on the moods you're feeling? Do you try to do a you know pre-writing energetic type ritual? To, to try change your mood we've, sp we've spoken about this, the kind of power of your current state and, uh, and ultimately those are some of the things did you end up implementing any of those kind of changes? Yeah so I did Chad I, I think this is where that planning really really paid off it's yep. because when I used to sit down I would have six or seven potential chapters I could work on that night okay. and there they had listed all the things that needed to happen right so the mood you're in to write a romance chapter is very different to an action yeah. chapter yeah. or to a kind of a, a very intense kind of dramatic piece and so what I would try and do is when I get home, I, I try and do a little introspection to figure out what am I feeling right now? Do I have, what kind of energy do I have? What mood am I in? And then look at the various pieces that were still unfinished and try and figure out what best matched that mood in a way. Yeah. And so that's where the planning really, really paid off. Because if you didn't have that plan, you'd kind of be sitting there and whatever you were feeling at the time would bleed into, the, into those characters. And what's so important in these stories and what I learned through this process is that if your characters aren't consistent... If, if, there, if there's inconsistencies in the way they act in kind of their, their values and their, their motivations for acting, the, the story kind of falls over yep. because people are reading for those characters. And so I had to be very, very careful to, to inject as little of myself as possible and think about the characters themselves. And by being able to match my mood to whatever a character was feeling in a certain situation, there was less chance of me injecting my own personal stuff, whereas letting the character speak for itself. Yep. 
Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. And in some of the works we've spoken about before, you've always kind of mentioned that uh, ultimately a lot of writers portray themselves in their work. Um, so, you know, that makes complete sense. Well, then let's talk about uh, one that I've been looking forward to your reaction on. Um, and that is day number nine, Barry. Do you remember what day number nine was? I don't, Chad. You're going to have to jog my memory. <laughs> day number nine was the famed raunchy scene. I never thought your sci-fi oh, book no. would have I, a oh, raunchy geez. scene. I should have called it. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of mood were you in when you wrote that one? <laughs> oh, Chad, it's, a, it's an hilarious story. I have this vivid memory of going, I was working at R&B at the time. I have this vivid memory of going to, to, to lunch the next day and a bunch of my friends had watched the video <laughs> and they were so keen to see this thing. They were like, we don't even care about the rest of the book. All we want to see is this particular scene. Uh, so it's very notorious for anyone who watched those vlogs. I, I never got more response or messages after that day okay. than any other day. Um, and I think, I think it was an interesting experiment for me because I'm not that kind of person in yeah. normal life. That's why people were so shocked when I kind of talked about it. But every good story has romance. Every good story yeah. has that element. We chatted about 365 yesterday, yeah. like the sex sells, unfortunately. And so I think it's an important part of the story. And it, it's not just there for fun. Like it does really push the plot yeah. forward in a very interesting way. And yeah. so I think it will make sense when you read the whole story. <laughs> But these vlogs are so isolated, right? And they talk about that one day and that one moment. Um, it's yeah. Everyone was asking me, is it based on real experience? <laughs> are you injecting an old flame into this? Yada yada yada. Everyone's trying to like character analyze. Who am I talking about? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, it was a very very funny moment, and I think I blushed for about three days afterwards. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Um, and yeah, I just had to put you on the spot there. I apologize, Barry. <laughs> it, uh, I took I took the the low hanging fruit there. My sincere apologies. It's it's a good scene, Chad. Trust me, you're gonna enjoy it when you get there. It's a good scene. Don't you worry. Well, looking forward to it. Um, I mean, but let's talk about that kind of feedback that you got. Let's talk about the I suppose the two way conversation that these vlogs were about, um, because ultimately they were about social accountability and you know, a mechanism for you to to put this out and kind of, I suppose, track your progress. But ultimately, you also made this a very inclusive journey. And I, I quite liked, you know, seeing that come through. So in terms of the kind of speak of uh, acknowledgements, you kind of mentioned that anyone who liked the Facebook page, um, you know, there would be a, a page uh, ultimately of the book kind of with the acknowledgements. And there were also a few times of the vlog series where um, you would kind of reach a point and, you know, need, I suppose, a bit of feedback, um, a particular character by the name of Carl that you just didn't think that the name fitted um, well enough and you kind of reached out for suggestions on other names are you gonna be honoring all of those kinds of commitments um you know in with the thought that this book might only be out in two or three years time of course chad I, I, that community was the reason i finished that book yep. right I, I was i was blown away by the amount of support that i got i kind of assumed no one would care about it i didn't think anyone would actually watch all of them but at the end of the day, I had a lot of people tuning in every single day, both from my own friends and family and external people from the NaNoWriMo community Amazing. who I didn't even know. Amazing. And the fact that I was vlogging this, I was getting messages every single day about this stuff. And so, yeah, I tried to include some audience participation type things. I'm trying, like you say, the name and the character and then some of the ideas have come from people that I spoke to. And um, the acknowledgements are definitely going to be there. I really do owe a debt of gratitude to everyone who supported me on that journey. Amazing. Because knowing that people were watching 
was the reason that I was able to kind of grind through long nights of writing. If no one was watching, I know I would have got lazy and I would have realized I haven't slept in the last four days. Yeah. I'm just going to go to bed. Why would I sit and write? But the fact that I knew that the next morning I'd get messages from friends or I'd see my work colleagues and they'd ask me how the last day's writing went, that is what got me through it. Okay. And so I think that anyone who followed me on that journey, they really got invested in the story, right? They're desperate for this thing to come out. And I know it's taken forever and I know it still isn't published. And I sometimes still get questions about it, which I find amazing because it was years ago now. Yep. Um, but that community that was, that was built, they watched me go through all of the emotions of that process and all that whole journey. If anyone who watched every single video, they really, really were invested in that thing. And that is one of the best things that I did. If I was trying to do this on my own without any support, there would not be a manuscript today. Absolutely. And I love the kind of humility that you lend to um, just talking about it. Sometimes when you get over the hurt, a lot of people forget about, um, you know, giving that, that gratitude. Um, but I love that you still hung on to it. And I think that's, I think that's quite special. Um, so just in terms of the external community that you mentioned, the actual NaNoWriMo, hopefully I said it right, community, um, we it. spoke about the sprints. Um, and that also seemed fascinating to me. The fact that basically there's a community of people who kind of get together at an agreed time and ultimately make sure that they themselves kind of write as many words as they can and post it back to each other. Did you find that was a powerful tool to get through this? It's everything, Chad. It's everything. And that's the key theme of this whole thing is that how small can you break the task down into, right? So you're starting with this 50,000 word novel. You're breaking it down to 30 days. So you've given yourself a word goal every single day. Then you're breaking that day's word count into individual sprints. So you're going to say for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to write as fast as I can. And I'm going to use the social accountability around me, whether it's on Twitter in a virtual sense yeah. or whether it's in a coffee shop. I went to a few write-ins in a physical sense and actually people are around you. Okay. And you break it down down, all you're focusing on is for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to focus just on this piece of writing. And that is the key theme of all of this is when you're trying to eat an elephant, the way you eat it is one bite at a time, yep. right? And you break that task down as small, as small as possible. A lot of people were kind of amazed that I was writing 10 minute sprints. It seems so insignificant. Yep. It's such a small piece of time. But if you give your absolute everything to those 10 minutes, you'll be amazed at how much, how many words you can actually write in such a small portion of time. Yep. And all it is is intensity of focus on one task for a certain period of time. It's something that uh, I think we've lost in this kind of fast-paced world. And uh, just hearing you kind of producing uh, 500, 600 words during this 10-minute period, um, for, me is, for me is crazy um, because I will sit and, you know, carefully write every single word. But it's a gift, Barry. Ultimately, not everyone can do this. And uh, the fact that you've done it is, is just incredible. Well done. Um, it really is amazing. The last final point that I want to chat about is uh, the soapbox episode um, where, you know, you kind of, I suppose, got to a point in your in your journey where you started off with really, really great momentum. I think the first week was solid momentum. And then you got to a point where, you know, the, the, the word count was declining. You get to a weekend and think that you're going to, you know, lay it all out on the page to make up for all of those, you know, slowing, slowing down days. Um, and you know, you just kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. Um, but ultimately you kind of confessed that this was a challenge and ultimately you kind of put out the wider meaning of life and what life is all about. And, uh, basically your, your final comment was uh, life is about pushing boundaries. That is what life is about. 
And uh, I mean, do you still hold true to that? that? That's kind of my underlying life philosophy. That's what I always try and do in my life. I think one of the things that I'm known for in my friends and family is trying to do things where I shouldn't have any right to do them, <laughs> right? So for, I shouldn't have any right to, to write a novel. I've got no writing experience to, uh, in a fictional way, right? right? But I, I believed myself unconditionally. And so when I hit that roadblock, when, like you say, when the momentum was running out and I was getting tired, every single day I was fatigued and I was not getting the words I needed to get. I knew that if I'd got on that, that soapbox, the metaphorical soapbox, and talked about this, it would have, again hold me accountable for what I really think. Yep. And I really do believe we are capable of so much more than we realize. We are capable of 10x the amount of things you think you are capable of. And all that's standing in the way is your own beliefs or your own stories that you tell yourself. If you're telling yourself a story that I get home from work, I'm exhausted, I have to sit and watch Netflix, I've got no other choice, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm tired, I don't, don't need to work, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Then fine, and that's the life you're going to lead. But you can choose to get home and tell yourself, even though I've worked 11 hours, even though I am tired, I can go for a run and I can try and get some writing in. And by changing that story and then broadcasting it to the world, it wasn't just my story, I was making myself accountable to everybody. Yep. It allowed me to do something I never should have been able to do. And that's why NaNoWriMo is so special. It's not about the words. It's not about the book. It's about that pushing that boundary and proving to yourself that you're capable of way more than you realized. To sit at the end of that month with a full manuscript is an emotional moment I will never forget. And if I didn't believe in that, if I didn't kind of tell myself that that was possible right from the beginning, it never would have happened. So for all of us, I think we all have these self-imposed boundaries on what we think we can accomplish or the person that we've been in the past or bad things that have happened to us. And it just takes a little bit of naive optimism in some cases. Yep. It takes a little bit of optimism. It takes some friends to kick you up the butt. It takes some sort of mission. And by proving to yourself you can do that, the whole world opens up. Because the moment you can say to yourself, holy moly, I wrote a full book in a month. <laughs> What's stopping me from writing 10 books, yep. 20 books, yep. right? The whole world opens up to you. And so those boundaries are so often not real they are just kind of stories we tell ourselves to make us feel fine when we're sitting on the couch watching Netflix for the fourth hour in a row. <laughs> it's the truth. You've spilt it out. And uh, yeah, just such a great philosophy to live by. Uh, really, really inspiring stuff. Like I said, um, for anyone, I highly recommend you do go and uh, basically check out those vlogs. Um, like Barry said, for in his words, they're cringeworthy. Um, ultimately, for me, <laughs> it's more about documenting the process and uh, ultimately this achievement, which is absolutely remarkable. So to avoid getting any more questions on this, Barry, what what is the next steps? Where are you at with it? What is stopping you from putting this thing out into the world under an orange label, of course? <laughs> so that, that is the big question, Chad. And it's something I've been struggling with for the last few years, right? After, after the NaNoWriMo, obviously the motivation fades and I went through a period where I didn't want to see another writing for a long time <laughs> because I put myself through so much in that month. And in the, in, the, in the year or two that followed that, I did a lot of editing. So I did three or four rounds of editing. For anyone who's written something like this, you'll, re you'll understand that the actual first draft is probably the easiest part, okay. right? Which is a weird thing to say because it was nigh impossible <laughs> at some stages. But the actual editing of it and making it worthy of being published is, is the next goal. For someone like me, I, I'm a very keen writer. I think that I have some skills there. I really do want to write important things. Yep. And so unfortunately, as a novelist or as an author, you are judged very heavily on your first book. 
Right. It's very hard to publish a first book and then if it's not good enough for someone to read your second or third because they've kind of written you off and there's tons of other good books. And so while I'm very happy with what I produced in that month just because of the pure volume, I need to make sure that that book is as good as I can make it before I publish it. So at this point, as I sit here right now, I still don't know what's going to happen, Chad. So I have a I have a mostly edited version. I think if I spend some decent time on it, I could get it to a kind of a finished place. But then it's a decision then to figure out, is this worth being my very first book? And if I'm going to put my name on it and publish it, then I need to be happy with that. And so I don't have any answers. And I know that's frustrating <laughs> for people who, who've been following this whole journey. Um, it's taken a lot longer than I thought. But I want to make sure I do it right. And if I'm not going to do it right, then I don't want to do it at all. Because at the, 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 I've already won. The, the win was for me yeah, personally. Yeah. The win was to prove myself sure. I can do this, right? And so I still do lots of nonfiction writing. But if I'm gonna if I'm gonna publish it, I need to be very confident in it. And I'm not there just yet. Who knows though? Who knows? Hopefully one day you'll be able to see the book Purple Shiver with that orange spine in your exclusive books. And I promise you that is what I'm working towards, but only if it's the right book. If I have to write another one that's going to be a better book, then who knows? I hope so, Barry. I really hope so. And uh, I mean, the dilemma that you've explained does make sense. Um, but I suppose it's one of those where, you know, you do kind of have to, I guess, you know, draw a line in the sand at some point um, and ultimately just, you know, let it out. Um, certainly with our podcast from day one, we just decided to to put it out. Um, on day one, we, we, we came up with the jingle. There was literally version one and that was it. Um, you know, we had the, <laughs> the logo, which we changed, I guess, over time. And I suppose... Being a creator, you always do want to put out your absolute best work. So I do do empathize with that. I just hope um, you get to the conclusion soon so we can all be the beneficiaries of this amazing work. I hope so too, Chad. I think you're right. I, I know a lot of this is probably my own procrastination, my own perfectionism kicking back in. And so I have to be careful of that. Um, but it really does mean a lot to me. Yeah. Like my first novel really is going to mean a lot to me. So I, I want to make sure it's right. I'm in no rush. I don't feel like I have to release it yeah. in a certain time period. Um, unless the tech changes very quickly, <laughs> of course. Um, so we'll have to wait and see there. But at the moment, it's in a, a dormant state. And uh, we'll keep you up to date. But hopefully it'll come out. Uh, who knows, Chad? I don't want to put it there. <laughs> okay cool well we tried folks we tried to get it out of it out of him uh try to extract as much of the the confidential storyline as we could but um anyway we'll we'll get there maybe i should release a chapter or two maybe i should uh release a little piece a little sneak peek not a bad shot maybe that'll push me to finish it not a bad shot i think that's a good idea what do you guys think uh definitely do let us know and uh to be honest i think what we're also going to start doing barry is is having a few polls on our on our instagram page um and basically yes. on our social media um so should this be the first poll i like it i like it let's let's put it to the listeners let's see if they want to see a chapter or two of purple shiver and uh yeah and which chapter obviously the raunchy one's going to be the one that everyone selects <laughs> <laughs> i can't give that away too early chad people have been waiting forever for that i can't give it away too early gosh all right. Well, um, I suppose that then brings close to the, the featured segment of this week's episode, which I've definitely been looking quite forward to. Um, and Barry, I see you wanted to chat about a little 
piece of creation of my own this week as well. Indeed, Chad. So so not to overshadow at all, but you released a brand new short film in the last couple of days, which has been very exciting. And I've been trying to push you to make more of these yep. things. You made one for the Peter McKinnon Film Challenge a couple a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, that got a really good response. And uh, your new one is even better, which <laughs> is hard to believe, but awesome. it's even better. And it, it's that silky Chad Sturley voice underneath some amazing footage of London. It's talking about how we need some love in our lives yep. and how we need to kind of push back and rebound from this terrible situation we've been in the last couple of months. So I'd like to encourage everyone listening to go and check it out. Um, Chad's, Chad's videos are getting better and better and better. Uh, if you want to be involved in his story, he's obviously documenting his whole creative process as he goes along. And so in the same way as you could have been involved in the Purple Shiver from the beginning, yep. get on Chad's stuff now because I promise you, you're going to hear his name for a long time to come. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Barry. I definitely am you know, trying. Um, but I think you're right. I think your encouragement um, to actually just you know, put these things in. And when you've got this kind of niggle in the back of your head telling you, this is the idea. It's one of those where, you know, you, you get this idea, you put something down on a piece of page and uh, you ultimately go up, go about your day-to-day life. But something in the back of your head just keeps kind of ringing you. It keeps just saying, well, work on it, work on it, like do something, um, put this thing out. Um, and ultimately that's basically what, what this was. Um, so it just took to the streets. Um, my very first time really, doing proper street photography, shooting other people, um, which was a little bit scary, I must be honest. Um, I was kind of <laughs> waiting for the for the backhand to come from somebody to, to tell me to stop <laughs> filming them. Did you get any weird looks from anybody? I got a few strange looks, but I mean, funny enough, I've actually included in the video one or two scenes where, where people looked at the camera. Um, so they were well aware that I was filming, but no one actually came up to me and you know asked any questions or um, I, I suppose conveyed any uh, discomfort. And I, I suppose this is really the interesting thing because straight after shooting this, um, I actually was talking to another friend about it and I ended up just Googling what the rules are. Like, who are you allowed to film? What are you allowed to film? Like, you know, what, <laughs> this is weird. There are loads of street photographers out there who have really big names um, who, you know, this is their key work is, is street photography, taking photos of, of unknowing individuals. When I did actually have a look at that, ultimately, if you're both on public property, apparently it's it's all fair game um, unless the person is doing something of a private nature. So, for example, if the person was exiting hospital, um, you know, those kinds of things, you, you know, you don't want to be capturing that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, ultimately, for, for the key message here, I, I think it really played out quite well having having access to um, the busy streets of London, um, loads of people wearing their masks, you know, obviously weird times. Um, typically we wouldn't really see that on a widespread level um so anyway i i thought it played it out quite well and i hope i hope everyone listening will, will go and watch it yeah the, like like you said the film wouldn't have worked without those people yep. like those shots of those people in in london that's what made that story and that little little piece right and so i yeah i do encourage everyone to go and check it out um i think that as we move out of this pandemic kind of world we're getting a chance to re-examine some of our priorities yep. and bring a chance to think about how we're going to live our lives going forward. We've all gone through incredible turmoil and incredible like struggle the last little bit. Yep. And this is a nice little reminder for us what it actually matters going forward. Are we going to go back to our same old habits, our same ways of living before the pandemic yep. and kind of fall back into some of those bad habits? Or are we able to kind of rethink about who we are as people and how we want to be in the world? And through the medium of film, this is a great opportunity to re-examine that. Yeah. And that's why I loved it so much, Chad. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think of it. So in the same way, please let us know what you think of the film. And so even though it does feel a little bit self-promotion-y, but I can do it because it's, <laughs> it's not my film, 
please go and share it with all your friends and your family. Um, it really is a, an amazing piece of film. And uh, I can't wait for a couple more, Chad. I'm going to keep pushing you. I'm going to keep nudging you in that rib <laughs> to make sure that all these ideas get shown to the rest of the world. Yeah, please do. Please do. I count on it. I cherish it. And I'm extremely grateful for it. So thank you very much. I mean, the one thing that I did note, and I'm sure when you did your book, it was kind of the same experience, um, is that it, it, certainly, it certainly gets easier. So when I look at the 72-hour film challenge, it took me basically a full day to to put the edit together on this case I, I kind of actually had more footage and i literally got home last night after filming and managed to get it out within a couple of hours so it's one of those where we now we're talking about pushing boundaries ultimately that's what it is you push the boundary um, and the next time you return that boundary is now a little bit wider you push it a bit more next time you return it's a little bit wider um so yeah that's definitely something that i noticed one little final thing i know i keep going back to this one final thing and sorry everyone if this is all over the place um but i think barry you, you touched on a really <laughs> important point which is returning back to our, our habits and uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your vlog series was about us all consuming all the time and not creating. So you spoke about the, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of books that you've read and, you know, what all of that knowledge actually results in. Do you actually ever get to test that knowledge? Um, and so, you know, it's equal to me watching thousands of YouTube videos on how to do this, how to do that, how to do that. And it's all very well to do all this consuming. Um, but until you actually go and stamp your kind of mark on the world and, and create, um, it's all kind of worthless. So I thought that was a really nice piece of yours as well. Yeah, I, I, I believe in that more than most things because I think so many of us are very happy to sit on the sidelines and make snide comments and sit in the peanut gallery and kind of respond <laughs> to what they're seeing. Yeah. It's very, very different when you're actually putting your voice onto something and you're actually saying something of, of meaning. And that's why I encourage anybody to start something. Start a blog, start a YouTube channel. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you have 24 subscribers. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. What it just does is it forces you to create and to think for yourself. And that is when you get yourself out of that that habit of just reading and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling your whole life, right? There's so many of us who have stories to tell. Like, and a lot of us think our story's not interesting enough. We don't have yep. interesting things to say. So why would people listen? That's not the point. The point is not to have people listen to you. Yep. The point is to, the act of creation. In the act of creation, you'll learn more about yourself and about what you think and about the way that you respond to various things than anything else. And so in my opinion, you should be creating as much as you are consuming. I don't think anyone ever gets there. It's kind of <laughs> impossible, I think, in, in today's world. But focus on creation as much as you can. Don't just spend your whole life consuming information and just taking the opinions and the thoughts of other people. When you try and figure out what you actually think and you try and put that in some sort of permanent format, whether it's written, on video, in audio, whatever it is, that is when it forces you to actually figure out what do you really think. I think, Chad, we found that in this podcast. A lot, of, a lot of the discussions we had in the podcast over the last 37 weeks, 38 <laughs> weeks, have been things that I don't know what I think until I start talking to you about it. And when I hear the words coming out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off the mark there or maybe I should refine things there. Yep. And that's one of the reasons we started this podcast was to do exactly that, to create, to create, to create. So please, everybody out there, it doesn't matter about who reads it or if anyone reads it. If it's just in your journal, yep. that is creation. Writing in your journal is creation. It doesn't have to be a YouTube channel. But there are not enough people who are sharing their voices authentically um, in a way that kind of gets, gets them away from just scrolling through news feeds all their life. 
completely, completely agree. And uh, I hope that you who's listening to this does implement it in any way. Um, you could be knitting, you could be painting, but definitely do shift in that gear from consumption to creation. Trust us, it will be worth it. Thanks again for listening to uh, another jam-packed episode of Across the Pond. Barry, would you just let everyone know where they can find us online? Yes, indeed, Chad. You can find Across the Pond on your channel of choice, wherever you like hanging out. On Twitter, we are at Across underscore podcast. On Instagram, we are at Across the Pondcast. And on Facebook, we are Across the Pond Podcast. But if you search it in any of those places, you should be able to find us. Please remember, we're sharing other bits and pieces on those yep. things. So it's not just the episodes that are going up there. Like Chad mentioned earlier, we're doing some polls. So please vote on those and let us know what you think on those. There's been interesting tidbits on our Twitter page and some cool photos on our Instagram we really are hoping to grow the community beyond just the audio piece of this podcast. And so I hope you'll join us there and join the, the community that is slowly starting to build on those platforms. We love hearing from you guys. We love seeing what you think. And uh, the reason that we're making these things is to communicate and to talk with you guys. Yeah. So we really do want to hear from you. So please, whatever your platform of choice is, we're not on TikTok just yet, <laughs> but uh, whatever you are, wherever you are, we'll be there. And with all that said and done, that brings episode 38 of Across the Pond to a close. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you, Chad, for your time this Thank evening. You, Thank you to you who's listening right now. You are a legend if you made it this far. <laughs> we really appreciate you. And we hope we'll see you next week, same time, for another episode of Across the Pond. Pond, Pond across the pond.